This week on One Body, Stewarding God's Creation, Deacon Harold Burke Sivers joins us in the studio to talk about forgiveness and mercy. How did Deacon Harold become so on fire for the Catholic faith? How did he reconcile with his father after 18 years and telling his children their grandfather was dead? Well, let's find out. This story of inspiration will help all of us. Hi, this is Donetta Robin, and I'm here this in the studio today with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, and he has been here in Hayes doing a mission for St. Joseph's Church, and good crowds, Deacon. Yes, right? all things considered with COVID, yes. Yes, very good crowds <laughs> and very good talks. What we're going to talk about today for this One Body Show is Deacon's story on how he became an on-fire Catholic, because most of us Catholics, we like to evangelize, but we don't just quit our job and go out and, and search the world. So, Deacon, can you just tell me your story? I'm just going to let you have the mic and tell us your story on growing up, how you were, you always were. You said you uh, mm-hmm. baptized Catholic, so just I'm just going to let you run with it. Sure. So uh, my family is from Barbados in the West Indies in the Caribbean. It's uh, in a chain of islands called the Lesser Antilles. So if you look on the map, actually if you look at South America, Venezuela, We're um, off the coast of Venezuela, and we're the largest island in the chain of islands called the Lesser Antilles. It's the furthest island east is Barbados, right near Trinidad and Tobago. And so I was born there. My brother was born there. And then um, my mother uh, came up to the United States. Now, my mother's family was uh, a a family of faith. They were Methodists, and my father's family had no faith at all, not even baptized. So, um, but my father didn't care. He allowed us to be, you know, um, raised in the faith. And so my mother converted when she was a teenager. She became uh, Catholic. So she did not have to be rebaptized, but she got confirmation and in, in Eucharist. And then I am the oldest child of their marriage. And so I am the first baptized Catholic in the history of our family. Wow. Um, and we came to the United States. My father didn't come with us. My father was a very successful singer and nightclub owner mm-hmm. and did not want to leave that lifestyle. But my mother left to leave that lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, it has its own temptations and things with it. And, and um, you know, my father does have about 15 other children with other women mm-hmm. um, because of the lifestyle choices he decided to make. So my mom came to the United States. She was a cardiac care nurse. And it was very important for her that we have a Catholic education. And so for me, Catholic grade school, high school, college, graduate school, all the Catholic institutions. And uh, I remember um, what's, what's, I think what's a little bit strange about me is I really liked going to Mass when I was a kid. And my mom t- says uh, she told me that she remembers um, bringing us to church, and I'd always want to sit at the end of the pew by the aisle, and then she would be next to me, and then my brothers and my my two brothers and my sister would be next to her, and they'd be fidgeting around, you know, like kids do. But I'd be like laser focused on what was going on at the altar. Mm-hmm. Now I remember parts of that. I remember thinking, "There's something going on up there. I don't fully understand what it is, but I want to be part of it." Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, and so. When I got old enough, my mom said, do you want to be an altar server? I'm like, yes, yes, I want to be up there. And so I I trained to be an altar server. 
And um, I love serving mass. I mean, even even now, you know, all these years later, I still get excited <laughs> about being on the altar. You know, I just I still have that childlike love of of serving and, and being part of the the liturgy. Uh, so I love serving mass. I remember one time very clearly, and never forget. It was uh, I was in seventh grade, and uh, our our. School was right across the street from the church. It was Christ the King in Hillside, New Jersey. And school started at 8, but if you served at the 8 o'clock Mass, you can go to school late. And I was serving at the 8 o'clock Mass, and it was and uh, me and another server, and it was my turn to ring the bells. I remember Father O'Connor was about to elevate the host. You know, this is my body. I, and I had my hand on the bells, and I remember thinking I could totally see myself doing what he's doing. Mm. So first time I thought about, like, I might— I'd be interested in coming to priest, you know. And uh, I used to serve at the 7.30 a.m. Mass on Sunday. Because when you're a new server, you get the, the, the worst, the, the kind right. of the worst Mass. And there was a visiting priest that used to come, Father Theodore. He wasn't a member of the parish. He used to come and just used to say that Mass on Sundays. That's the only time we ever see him. And so I, I mentioned him because when I got to high school, I went to St. Benedict's Prep in Newark, New Jersey, an all-boys high school. Um as a freshman, I saw Father Theodore dressed in a monastic habit. And I'd never seen him in that before. He was just in clerics. And I said, Father Theodore, you remember me? He looked at me. He goes, you look familiar. I said, I used to serve for you at Christ the King at the 730. He goes, oh, yes. I said, you live here? He said, yes, I'm a monk. I said, what's a monk? <laughs> you know? And, and, and so um, I ended up doing the Come and See program all four years of high school. Uh, back then, they allowed boys that were maybe interested in monastic life to live in the novitiate uh, on the fourth floor. But obviously, they can't do that now with all the, you know, right. uh, child protection stuff. But it was a great, I mean, I had a wonderful experience. And it really helped me to fall in love with my faith, living that monastic life. I love the silence. I love the rhythm of the life and the prayer and the work, you know, or at labor, pray and work, St. Benedict's motto. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I think this is what God might be calling me to do. And so I ended up uh, being the first person in my family ever to go to college. I got a, a, an academic scholarship to Notre Dame. So I went to ND for four years. And then um, I worked for a year as I was discerning monastic life and then joined the monastery the year after. So I graduated in 88, worked for a year, then joined the monastery in 89. And I thought, this is it. I'm going to be here. Um, but what that did, though, was it caused a rift between me and my dad. So my dad eventually did join us in the United States and he kept his lifestyle choice decisions. You know, the women and the drinking and um, it was not good or healthy for our family. Um, my, my parents eventually got divorced. You know, and it did it affected all four of us, although we were glad that he was gone in a sense. You know, he was still our dad. And, and, and people ask me, young people particularly ask me, what is it like being a child of divorce? Because they're not stupid. They can see something's going on with their parents and it might go that way. And so they ask me what it's like. And I tell them the truth. I say, you know, marriage is a beautiful thing. It really is. But it's also the cross. And divorce is when the parents put the cross down and the kids pick it up. And, I, and, I, and that's not a place you ever want to be. But that's where we were. And all four of us were affected by it. For me... The rift came when I joined the monastery. Oh, my father was so upset. Uh, he was so disappointed. Here I am, the first person in my family to go to college. 
I get an academic scholarship to a, one of the best universities in the country. I get an economics and business degree. And now he said, according to him, quote, you're going to waste your life living with a bunch of men. What's wrong with you? What am I supposed to tell my friends? And, and from then on, I consider him dead to me. Um, I have a question yeah. right here. Isn't it amazing that no matter if a parent is there or not there for the child, that the child still wants that parent's approval? Yeah, that that's true. You know, I mean, we had some great moments with my dad, too, but I mean, it's overshadowed by the other things that went on. But bottom line, he's still our dad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I was just so angry, you know, because, I mean, he he didn't come to my graduation because he was drunk. He didn't come. Uh, I was an outstanding wrestler. My, uh, I was ranked uh, one of the top ranked wrestlers in New Jersey. Didn't come to any of my matches. You know, and every, I mean, I remember every time the ref raised my hand, which pretty much was all the time, I'd look around the gym. Did he make it today? Did he? I mean, just look around. Did he? Did, is he here? You know? I know my mom wasn't there because she worked as a cardiac care nurse. She worked the graveyard shift, and she worked overtime to make sure that we can have the things she never had, like a Catholic education. You know, so she scrimped and she saved and she went to, to work with. And that was the days when the nurse wore the white suits with the white uniforms, mm-hmm. the white stockings, the white shoes, the hat and everything. Yeah. And she went with holes in her shoes and runs in her stockings because we needed stuff. The kids, you know, so I saw the sacrifice. So I know she wouldn't be able to make it. That's fine. But I still wanted my dad to be there, you know. And yeah, so, so I basically considered him dead to the point even uh, after I left monastic life and got married. When my kids asked, where's our grandfather? I told them he was dead. I told them to their face that he was dead. That's how much I hated my father. So, you know, I was very happy in the monastery. My mom got sick and almost died. And so they, the kids had always, my siblings always looked to me. To, you know, if something wrong with mommy, they always came to me. And so uh, I said, I, I'm in a monastery now. I said, you know, you got to figure it out. The abbot eventually let me out of the monastery to, to help take care of my mom and to manage things at home. My sister was still in high school then. Mm-hmm. I had to make sure she ate and got to school and took care of the bills at home and all that. And um, I went to a wedding. And that's where I met the woman who ended up being my wife. Oh. <laughs> so God had other plans. God had other plans. Like, yikes. And she's from Oregon. So that's how I got from New Jersey to Oregon. Okay. And, um, you know, and people ask, well, gosh, why did, why did God put you in a monastery? You, ever since you were a little kid, you felt this desire. And all of a sudden, you're out of the monastery and you're married. And, you know, I thought, and looking back at it now, I needed to be there in the monastery for that period of time for a reason. Because God would use that as a a way that I would draw from that experience in the work that I'm doing now in the Lord's Vineyard. So in the monastery, that's where I I fell in love with prayer, especially saying the office every day, which I still have to do as a deacon. You know, so I love praying the Liturgy of the Hours and devotions like rosary, uh, the chaplet, Eucharistic adoration, silence. All of that was fostered in monastic life. And I draw from that foundation all the time in the work that I'm doing. So the Lord said, I need you here, okay? I need you married because you need to talk about marriage. And, now, and he put it all together. And looking back, it makes sense. But when you're going through it, it's like, uh, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what's going on right now? You know, and um, it's been a really a, an incredible journey. So um, what were you doing when you were first married? You weren't out yeah, so So right? um, <laughs> when I was at Notre Dame, uh, back in those days, in the in the early '80s, uh, they did not. The only people that got full academic scholarships were athletes 
and Ph.D. students. Mm. And so even though I had a scholarship, it was only half because I think that was the maximum they, they would allow at that point. And so I had to work for the other half. And so I interned at the police department my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I worked for a year. Well, I stayed on campus and worked for the police department. When I was a senior, they offered me a full-time position, which I said, well, I'm discerning monastic. But anyway, I might as well stay here and, and, and discern here, which I did. And I enjoyed my experience in law enforcement. So when I left the monastery, I said, well, you know, I, maybe I should get back into the law enforcement thing again. And that's what started the journey. And I ended up serving for 23 years and 11 years as a police chief on a college campus, uh, campus university mm-hmm. policing at the University of Portland. Okay. And so when we moved to Oregon, my wife's a psychologist, so she was working in a hospital and, and part-time private practice. And I was working as for the Salem-Kaiser School District as a police services and liaison to the SROs, the school resource officers and all that. And then the job opened up as at the University of Portland, which is a Holy Cross school. So the same group of priests that run Notre Dame also run the University of Portland. Says Catholic. So, so my boss from Notre Dame, the police chief, recommended me for the position at the University of Portland. And so I applied and got the job, and I was there for 11 years. And I was very happy. And um, my area specialization was threat assessment. So I became the president of the Western Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators during 9-11. So after 9-11, the International Association sent all of the regional presidents to uh, the F- what they call FLETSI, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Georgia, where I had my first immersion into assessing threats. So I came back to Oregon, got really good at it, and so they sent me to Quantico. So I trained at the FBI Academy of Secret Service, U.S. Marshals, Naval Intelligence, SEALs, on advanced techniques for assessing threats. And so I began teaching at the police academy a class called Contemporary Threat Assessment Methodology. So I would be teaching police officers and first responders how to identify and respond to threats of terrorism. And uh, I also started a consulting company because I was asked to do what's called target hardening, um, evaluating processes, procedures, and methods to help businesses, school districts, universities to become harder targets uh, for violence and terrorism. And so I had my job as chief, I had my consulting company, and I was uh, training to be a deacon and all that stuff. I had my, you know, have kids and, and I had a very full life and, you know, I was like, oh, this is great. Never thinking even once about speaking on the Catholic faith or writing books or any of that. Didn't even mm-hmm. cross my mind. So then the next question is, what? How did, how'd you get started in doing that? Right. Well, in our diocese, the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon, is one of the few dioceses that requires a master's degree to be ordained a deacon. Um, that's very unusual. A lot of dioceses don't do that. But I think it was Cardinal Levada, actually. Uh, he was, a, uh, people forget, he was an archbishop in Portland. Then he went to San Francisco. And then he went to Rome. I think it was Pope Benedict chose him to be the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But he was in Portland. I think he started the education requirement for two reasons. One, we are incredibly unchurched out there. Mm-hmm. And you talk about the Wild West? Yeah, it's the Wild, the wild Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Lots of atheists, lots of pantheists. So pantheism is that they worship nature, you know, God is a tree, that kind of thing. And also a lot of witches, uh, warlocks, you know, the occult stuff. And so I think Carnal Levada wanted the, the de- even the, de- the permanent deacons to be, have some 
formal level of training. And I think also he felt that the priest might accept the deacons better. They'd be better accepted by the priest if they had some level of education. You know, like they obviously it's not extensively that the priests go through, but a master's in theology. You know, hey, we can respect that kind of a thing. So I was at the University of Dallas for that. And during that time when I was there, 97 to 2000, Father Mitch Pacwa was teaching there. Marcelio D'Ambrosio was teaching there. Janet Smith was teaching there. Um, you know, all these rock star teachers. And I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. I had an amazing experience. And so um, I graduated from University of Dallas in 2000, got ordained in 2002, and was working um, you know, we were having, you know, we are, our, uh, we had our daughter in 98, another daughter in 2000. We had the twins in 2002. So I have a young family working the parish, working my job. Great. Then one of my classmates from the University of Dallas said, hey, you know, um, I remember a paper you wrote in grad school about male spirituality. You know, I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. You should probably talk about that in, in a parish. I'm like, give a talk in a parish. I'm like, okay. So I went and literally read my paper. <laughs> that was my first. I just, I don't, I don't, I wasn't talking about the Catholic faith. I was talking about, you know, how does a terrorist go from ideation to actualization? How do they go from just thinking about and planning something to actually doing it? What are the steps? I was talking about what's called sea burning, you know, the different, the different types of attacks. I mean, I, was, I wasn't talking about anything about the Catholic faith. And so, but the pastor liked what I had to say. So he invited me back a second time. I said, well, what do you want me to talk about this time? I don't know. Talk about like marriage. You're married. Talk about marriage. I'm like, okay. I mean, so I'm like trying to figure out how to do this. So the second time I was there, someone from the Catholic radio station was there. You should do something for us on the radio. I don't know anything about radio. What are you talking about? Well, no, no. Just come see us and we'll talk about it. <laughs> so I went to the radio station. I sat down. I, I said, well, I don't understand how this, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, and so we developed a show called Faith and Life, a little 30-minute pre-taped show once a week. Just how do you integrate your faith into your life every day? Well, back at that time, Jerry Usher was the host of Catholic Answers Live. Mm -hmm. So Jerry came to the station to help the station raise money during a share And he heard my little show. So he goes, hey, Deacon, you know, how would you like to be on Catholic Answers Live? I'm like, I can't be on no show like that. I'm some schmo from Jersey. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I can't do that. He goes, no, no, no. It'll be great. Talk about the male spirituality. I love that. You had a great. Talk about that. Okay. So 2004 was my very first appearance on Catholic Answers Live. I've been on 40 times since then, but, but my very first time, great. Now, Father Mitch now made the transition from teaching full-time at graduate level to work at EWTN. He hears me on Catholic Answers Live. So he calls me up and says, how come you're on Jerry's show, you're not on mine? I said, I don't know, Father. So he invited me to be on EWTN Live. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd never been to EWTN, so I was like, oh, I get to go to the network, I get to see Father Mitch again. This reunion from grad, because I ended up being a research assistant for him at, in grad school, so I, Father Mitch knew me and my family. So I said, this will be great. So I go and I do the show, and I don't think anything of it. I was excited to see the studio and all that. So I go back home, back to my life. A week later, I mean, plus I'm getting all these emails from Malta, from Nigeria, from the Philippines about what I, because I talked about male spiritual. I'm like, what did I say? I mean, this is stuff I talk about all the time. I mean, I, what did I say that got people, I, I think, I don't know. So then I get a call from Doug Keck, 
who's at that time executive vice president of EWTN, he goes, man, we're getting a lot of feedback from your appearance with Father Mitch. Do you think you could turn that into 13 episodes? Uh, I think so. So, so I wrote a little proposal, sent it to him, said, yep, we're going to do it. When can you come down and film? I said, film? <laughs> I mean, this was all happening so fast. And so now we film it. This is the same year. So it's 2004. So I filmed the series, and then it starts airing in 2005. You know, and then, and I'll forget this, it was the, we had just finished shooting. So the next day I had a free day. So I, I was going to, you know, go around the bookstore and, do, you know, and maybe go up to Hansville to see the shrine and all that. And Doug Keck comes because uh, EW10 owns a, owns a bunch of houses around the studio. That's where the guests stay. So Doug Keck comes to the front door. And I'm like, Mr. Keck, did I miss a meeting with you? Was I supposed to meet with you? I'm so sorry. I, I, I thought I had a free day. He goes, no, 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 no. You're fine. He said, um, we want you to think about doing something else for us. I said, Mr. Keck, we just finished filming yesterday. They haven't even edited it yet. They haven't even done anything. I said, we just finished yesterday. How do you know that it's any good? He goes, just trust me. Just start thinking about doing something else for us. Well, here's, here's the backstory who I found out later. So when they're filming, they don't allow pilgrims or visitors into the studio while you're filming. The, for the live show, yes, but not when you're doing a series. And so what, because they never had anybody like me on before, that's with the passion and the, you know, the, the kind of ethnic thing going off, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know? So they weren't sure how people were going to react to me. And so what he did was he had the pilgrims stand by the control room and watch me on the monitor, and they stood back and watched how people were reacting to me. And when they saw that people were like, I, I, I guess from what he said, that people were just like drawn in and engaged, and he goes, okay, we think we got something here. And so I started doing, and now I've done nine series on EWTN now. My ninth one is airing now with Father Brian Mullady. I've teamed up with my very good friend, Dominican Father Brian Mullady, and we've done a series called God's Blueprint for a Happy Life, where we go through uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, so that's a 15-part series on the Ten Commandments because we can't count. <laughs> so, no, no. obviously there's, there's some commandments that take more time to explain and break open. So we spend two episodes on, on some of the uh, commandments. So end up with 15 episodes. So that's great. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. We'll be right back with more from Deacon Harold Burke Sivers on Forgiveness and Mercy. One body. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. One body. One body. Forgiveness and mercy. God's creation. One body. One the story of Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. One body. Sure. So, um, like I, I mentioned, I had not spoken to my dad for, for 18 years. So, year 17 of our estrangement, something very interesting happened. That was when my first series started to air on EWTN, Behold the Man, right? A Catholic vision of male spirituality. Now, it started to air internationally, including my home country of Barbados. One of my relatives sees me on there. They call my father. Isn't that your son on TV? My son. So my dad flips the channel, bam, there I am. He hasn't seen me for 17 years now, talking about what it means to be an authentically Catholic man. So he's intrigued. 
So he wants to watch the next week. Okay. So he got the time right, but the day wrong. Instead of watching me, he's watching an old nun with a Bible on her lap that last night. <laughs> he's watching Mother Angelica. Now, remember, my father was a performer. He did not know how this worked. Because remember, he didn't catch the show till almost the end by the time my, my relative called him. So he thought, who's this lady? Where's my son? Oh, she must be the opening act. So this lady's going to talk for a while. Then my son is going to come out. So my father sat there, listened to Mother Angelica, and waited for me to come out. I never came out. But he watched the entire hour episode. Now, later on, I would say, well, Pop, when I didn't come out, why did you keep watching? He said, she just made so much sense. Remember, this is a man who's not baptized, never went to church. The only time I ever heard him use the Lord's name was as a curse. The man destroyed our family. Yet he listened to Mother Angelica for an entire hour. Now, that little episode started him on his own faith journey. Now, this is year 17. That means I have not still, still spoken to my father yet. A year goes by, year 18. I'm driving home from work. I get a call on my phone. I don't recognize the number, but it's New Jersey area code. So I answer it. Son? Pop? I almost crashed the car. <laughs> I, I pulled over to the side of the road. I'm like, what is this? And he starts talking to me about Jesus. And I, now, he talked to me for, for 31 minutes and 12 seconds. Longest conversation we've ever had in our life. 31 minutes and 12 seconds. Hung up the phone. And I was mad. I'm like, who does he think he is to call me after 18 years to tell me about Jesus? He don't know Jesus. I know Jesus. All that man knows how to do is destroy our family. I remember yelling to myself in the car. God, if this is from you, you're going to have to show me because I don't believe anything that comes out of that lying pig's mouth. And then I learned, you better be careful what you ask for. Because a few weeks later, I received the invitation, to sp my first time to speak in my home state of New Jersey, at a parish one mile from my father's apartment. I took it as a sign. So my brother arranged for me to see my dad, my brother that was born in Barbados with me, a year, a year younger than me. I went to his apartment. My dad shows up. And I'm shocked at his appearance. He um, had cancer which obviously I didn't know about because I wasn't speaking to him. He had lost more than half his body weight. He had big patches of hair missing because of the chemo. And I was just startled by his appearance. He says, hello, son. It's good to see you. And I just nodded my head. And it just once I got over the shock, the next words I wanted to hear was what? I'm sorry, son. <laughs> I wanted to hear, I'm sorry for the hell I put you and your mother and your siblings through for all those years. I'm sorry I was drunk and missed your graduation. I'm sorry I was sleeping around with all these women. I couldn't come and see your wrestling. I'm sorry that the one time, the one time you asked me to support you when you joined the monastery, I couldn't even do that for you. That's what I wanted to hear. No, but but but, but all he talked about was the kind of person he is now. And I was thinking, about, I said, the Lord taught me a huge lesson that night. The Lord said, look, you know what happened back then. And he knows what happened back then. There is nothing either one of you can do to change that. Deal with the person I have in front of you now. So my father says, hey, son, I'm still making music. You want to hear a song? All right, Pop. Now, my, my father was, a, was is called a Clipsonian. 
okay? And the type of calypso music that he wrote was called soca. So for us in the United States, that would be like the equivalent of R&B, okay? It's the Caribbean version of, you know, kind of a dance music kind of up. And the songs he would write, for example, he wrote a song when we were kids called Hazel. Hazel, darling, woman, you excite me. I don't know where or how you got that body. Stuff like that. And by the way, my mother's name was Eleanor, not Hazel. So I don't know who Hazel was, okay? So I I said, okay, Pop, whatever. So he puts on the CD, and it's just a, a music track. He starts singing. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. My eyes are wide open, yet I fail to see. Lord Jesus, I beg you, have mercy. Please have mercy on me. Lord, I am so sorry. I want to live a life that's honest and true. He kept singing this song. And I'm thinking to myself as he's singing, you can't fake that. So when he stopped singing, and I don't know what possessed me to do this, I literally walked up into the man's face. I'm standing face to face. And I said, I'm going to ask you a question right now. If you've ever loved me even once as your son, don't lie to me. If you're going to lie, then say nothing. What happened to you? All this talk about Jesus and mercy. Had I not been standing in that man's face to hear what came out of his mouth next, I never would have believed it. The man who never went to church, who was not baptized, who used God's name as a curse, who destroyed our family, looked me in the face in all seriousness and said, the blessed mother and divine mercy. I was literally stunned. I could not speak. I'm like, how does he even know about Mary and divine mercy? Well, EWTN. He'd been watching for a year, and I didn't know. I did not know this. So I was completely stunned. So now I go home, and my mother is living with us now in Oregon. Um, When I left the monastery, I mentioned she had gotten sick and almost died. Well, that started a slow but steady decline of her health to the point where she could not take care of herself anymore. So we moved her with us in Oregon. So I go home, and Mommy says, is it true, son, about Pop? Is it true? I said, Mommy, you can't fake what I saw. So a few months later, my father calls me, son, I want to come see my grandkids. I said, okay, Pop, um, when can you come? I can come this weekend in June. I said, Pop, that's really not a great weekend for me. I got some stuff going on. But he said, well, that's the only weekend I can come, so I'm coming. But I got a problem. I told the kids he was dead. So So I did what any intelligent man would do in my situation. I went to my wife. I said, how do I get out of this? And without missing a beat, my wife says, well, Jesus did raise the dead, didn't he? So my kids were young. I said, Claire, my, my oldest is 23 now, right? But back then she was like nine. So I said, kids, quick, come and see daddy. A miracle. Are you going to see your grandfather? You know, they, they didn't get it back then, but they get it now, right? They understand now. So my dad comes out. And now my mom was living with us, but she, uh, about 10 days before my dad arrived, she had a bout of congestive heart failure. So she needed more care than we can give her at home. So she was in a uh, convalescent facility. So my father actually stayed in her room. Um, while he was there. And some amazing things happened that week, and I'll just, I'll just share two with you very quickly. One was that there was a men's conference in Portland that weekend, and I, a Catholic men's conference. I wasn't speaking, but I wanted to go and support the guys. Well, in God's providence, who was the speaker that weekend? Father Donald Calloway. <laughs> right? So, so I know Father Calloway. We text each other every week. Father Calloway and I are good friends. But my father has no idea who he is. So my father's at the, he's never, and my father's never been anything Catholic in his life. Never. Mm-hmm. This is the first event. So he's enjoying himself so far. The father Calloway starts to speak. 
and start he starts telling the story about you know he was uh, the gangs in Japan and the 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 drugs and the sex and all the crazy stuff he was into. My father leans over and says to me, "That guy's a priest." I'm like, "Yeah, pop." And then he talks about how he got uh, put on the ja- the plane by Japanese police that never come back to the country again. My father said, "He's worse than me." <laughs> But then he then he gets to the point in the story, everything changed. His encounter with the Blessed Mother. My father reaches across the table and grabs my arm and shakes my arm. Mary, son. Mary. I said, I know, Pop. He goes, I have to meet him. I said, okay, Pop. So after Father Callaway finished, I introduced him to my dad. And and they start talking about Mary. I'm like, my father, he doesn't even have a... Well, he has a fifth grade, sixth grade education. What is he? He's talking about Father Callaway about Mary. It's just nuts. Then the other thing I just want to share from that weekend is that on the way back from the conference, I wanted to go see my mom. And so I said, okay, Pop, let me drop you home. Let me go see Mommy before the visiting hours are over. Then we can go to dinner. He goes, no, let's go see your mother. So we got to the, the convalescent home. I said, look, look, Pop, let me go in first. Let me tell Mommy that you want to see her because she might give her another heart attack or something, you know. So I walked in there and I kissed my mom and said, Mommy. And I pointed to the door and my father walks in. And the look on my mother's face, shock, surprise, gladness, anger, (laughs) all mixed up together. And so they start talking. I leave the room. And I'm thinking, this ain't going to take long. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. I'm standing at a nurse's station. I'm like... What's taking so long? I'm going to get nervous now because it's the first time I can remember them being in a room without yelling or something being thrown. Then half an hour later, my father comes out. Okay, son, let's go. Okay. So I go back in to kiss my mom goodbye, and she goes, who was that? (laughs) I was like, I know. I said, I'm getting used to this too. And I, to this day, I don't know what they talked about. Both my parents are deceased now. I don't know what they talked about. But I do, I do know this, that they reconciled. And I, here's how I know. A couple months after my father was here, my mother, uh, I came home from work, and I usually go see my mom because we had her in a mother-in-law suite in our house, and then I would bring her over and have dinner with us on our side of the house, you know, with, as a family. So when I came in to see her, she goes, sit down. And she said, uh, remember when you moved out here what I asked you to do? And she had asked me to pray for my father, and I told her no. She said, starting on that day, I started praying a rosary every day for your father with the sole intention of reconciling with him before I die. And she said, that's what happened in the room that night when he was here. So I just stood back and said, wait, wait, mommy, what are you telling me right now? You're telling me the day that I moved out here, you started praying a rosary for pop? Yes. Mommy, that was 20 years ago. What happened after year five? After year 10, after year t- every day, yes. And you never stopped? No. In fact, she never took her wedding ring off. Even though they were divorced, never took her wedding ring off. Because she knew that God would honor her requests through the intercession of the Blessed Mother. Now, they never lived together again or anything like that, but they were, they were reconciled. And I, like I, said, I don't know the conversation, I don't know what they talked about. But a month later, my mom died. She died a month later. And I knew she died in peace knowing that her one wish was granted by the Lord. Now, my mom died in 2009. In 2012 is when I left my job to speak full time. And uh, I felt the Holy Spirit calling me. And uh, I said no, because I'm like, how am I supposed to support my family talking about Jesus? 
<laughs> you know, I mean, I was and I was scared. But a year went by and I had a very serious conversation with my wife and she said, we should do it. Not you should do it. We should do it. And I, I tell you the truth. Her love gave me the confidence to follow God's will. And I left my job. I wrote a resignation letter. I, I started this, the, the process of selling my practice. My, I was a consulting company. I sold it to a colleague of mine in Seattle. And on June 30, 2012, I walked away from 23 years, from an entire career. And I said, okay, Jesus, whoo, I did my part. Now it's on you, right? And so that year was the year of faith, by the way, too, that Pope Benedict had declared. And so I was on a, a, um, a year of faith speaking tour in Italy. My brother calls. Hey, man, Pop's cancer's back. Um, the doctors don't think he's going to make it till Christmas. He has a mass in his cecum. The cecum connects the large and small intestine together. He didn't pass the heart test for surgery. They're just going to hit it with chemo, and that, that's it. So you need to come home. All right. So I, I, I was just at the end of the tour, so I finished the tour, but I had to change my flight to another airline to fly back through Newark. So I get to Newark. My father is basically in hospice staying with my brother now and so I spent three days with my dad and on the second day the Holy Spirit called me to do something very strange I I knelt down my father was on the couch watching TV I knelt down in front of my father and I asked him to forgive me for hating him for 18 years I asked him to forgive me for telling his grandkids he was dead now, some people are saying, well, that, why would you do that? It's not your fault. He's the one that caused all the problems. That's true. But the Holy Spirit was calling me to be a vehicle of mercy in the life of my father. If you look at that beautiful divine mercy image, the rays are coming out from the heart of Jesus. Right? They're going in one direction. They're coming forth from the heart of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit was saying, if this is not about him you know, asking for your forgiveness. This is about you asking him for forgiveness of how you felt about him, right? Because Jesus says, love your enemies. You didn't do that. Jesus says, love those who hate you. You didn't do that. You were the Samaritan who walked by the guy on the road and just watched him there and said, no, you deserve it. That's your fault. You're a Samaritan. If you were like me, that wouldn't have happened. That kind of thing, you know? But the Holy Spirit convicted me to do that. And then that, that brought our healing up to a whole nother level at that point. And so... Um, I leave and go home, and I go to my pa- my parish, and my father, Father Nicholas says, how was the tour? I said, well, it's fine, but my dad, you know, um, probably not going to make it. And, he, and my, Father Nicholas turned to me, he said, he's from Tanzania. He said, don't worry, Mary will take care of it. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, Father, but whatever. <laughs> and so um, he started have the Legion of Mary pray rosaries for my dad. And a couple months later, December 12th, Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I'm preparing for Mass. My brother calls. I'm at the hospital. And um, I'm with the doctors. I'm here with Pop. And I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, he's dying. You know, I'm thinking funeral. Does he have insurance? I'm thinking all this stuff. Do I have to cancel anything? And I said, okay, Jerry, what's going on? He says, uh, that Mass in his cecum is gone. I said, I know it probably shifted lower in his intestine. It's causing some blockage. And he's got not much further to go. He goes, no. It's not there. Where'd it go? I don't know. What do doctors say? They don't know. What does this mean? And Jerry says, I think he's going to make it to Christmas. <laughs> My father lived four more years. Wow. 
And during those four years, he would say things to me, God is real, son. God is real. Son, I wish I knew back then what I know now. Completely changed and transformed person. And I had the honor and privilege of being at my father's bedside when he died. I wasn't there when my mom died because I was at EW10, actually, when she died. I was at, getting ready to film a series when she passed. But, I, but the Lord allowed me, uh, my, my, when, my fa- when my father was finally actually really dying, my brother called me. I had to cancel a, a speaking engagement in Denver. And, immediate, and I was already in the airport. I was already in the airport when my brother called me and said, you need to get home now. You may not make it in time. So... God's promise, I did make it to Newark. I went to the hospital. I got a chance to, to see my dad. And uh, he, he died exactly 3 o'clock on October 5th. Whose feast day is that? St. Faustina. So my, fa- my father dies at exactly 3 o'clock, the hour of mercy, on the feast day of the Divine Mercy Saint. What, a be- what better ending can you give to a life than that? After And here's the best part. When I got the flight to Newark, I said, Jerry, call somebody to anoint Pop. Now, my brother's not, and because of what happened at home, my brother was struggling with his faith. He wasn't practicing. He said, who should I call? I said, just call a priest to anoint Pop. So when I get to the, when my brother picked me up at the airport, I said, oh, thank you, Jerry. I said, who'd you get? To, did you call a priest? Oh, yeah, I got a priest. Who? He goes, I got one of the monks from the Abbey. <laughs> Father Philip, my English teacher. So it was a monastery that divided us. And then when he's dying, it was a monk from that same monastery who came and anointed my father before he died. Wow. How God brought everything back around. What? I mean, that's amazing. It's amazing. And, you know, I knew my father was going to make it, you know, to heaven. I mean, he's probably going to be in purgatory for a long time, but, <laughs> yeah. but he's, but he's going to make it. Yeah. Did, he ever, did he ever tell you how the Blessed Mother touched him? Or, I, I, or well, what turned him on to the Blessed I, I, Mother? Well... Or was it just DW? Well, I, I, what, I think what, what it was was that he had never heard anyone talk about women because for him, women are just objects for right. pleasure and gratification. But when he saw shows about the Blessed Mother and how the church thinks about women and theology of the body, that hit him like he had never heard anything like that before. It was all new for and, and, and see when the heart hears truth, that then the heart becomes convicted. Oh, you know that's true. You know that's good. You know that's beautiful. And his heart was just pulled in. And the more that he heard, the more he was emptying himself of sin and filling himself with the life of God. And it started with my series for men, which I talk about. How men should treat women, you know, is with the, dig- the full dignity that God, equal in dignity before God and all of that. And that started him on the road. Uh, uh, but just watching EWTN and listening to the different things about the Blessed Mother and women and all the other things that they taught just, just brought it all together for him and really caused a conviction. First, I thought it was faking. That's why I got in his face. But when I saw it was real, I'm like, oh, wow, God is doing something here. And you got to understand, I never thought that my father would ever change. Never. Mm-hmm. Never. One mistake I made in my life. I thought my father was dead. I forgot Jesus raised the dead. I'll never make that mistake again. Talking about this, and Divine Mercy Sunday is coming up April 11th, the Sunday after uh, Easter. Can you just maybe go over on how we can offer maybe someone we love that 
Yeah, I, I know. Possibly passed away this last yes, year. Yes, yeah. You know, I, I know a lot of people out there are hurting. They may have lost someone to COVID. And, and sometimes you may have lost someone because you couldn't really go see them in the hospital or in the, in the assisted care facility because of COVID. So that person may have died alone right. without you maybe resolving something with that person. So maybe you're still carrying around anger or resentment or there's something you always want to tell the person you didn't get a chance to tell them. So we live these lives of, of regret. Or we're carrying burdens, things that happened to us 20, 30 years ago that are still harboring in our hearts and festering in our hearts to this very day, that are holding us back from receiving the depth of God's mercy that he wants to give us. So I would say there's four things we need to do just quickly. One is, first of all, to acknowledge and recognize that we have been hurt. Because one of the defense mechanisms that we often employ is, well, if I just don't think about it, then it never really happened. Well, yes, the rape did happen. The molestation did happen. The, your, your kids leaving the church did happen. You know, your husband beating you did happen. Don't suppress it. You know, uh, uh, yes, if you have to cry, then cry. Mm-hmm. If you have to feel it, then do it. Because bring it up so that, bring it to the service so God can heal it. God's never going to force his love on you. But if you say, Lord, I'm in pain, and you cry out to the God, you know, uh, was this saying in the Psalms, I cry out to the Lord, my God, and my God will hear me, right? Bring that healing from the, from the, 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 the merciful love that flow from that cross, you know? Uh, so, so acknowledge that. Second of all, fight with spiritual weapons. You know, David, when he fought Goliath, I think he fought him with a type of, of uh, rosary, you know, the sling and the five smooth stones. Yeah. So the five stones represent the five wounds of Christ or each of the five joyful, sorrowful, luminous, and glorious mysteries of the rosary. You know? And so we need to fight with spiritual weapons. And we have plenty in the church, right? Third, I think general confession. You know, uh, often the hardest person to forgive is yourself. And a general confession, we go in and confess all the sins you committed in your whole life. Well, I've, you know, God's forgiven me those sins. Yeah, that's true. But we often think, oh, I'm so unworthy that we, like the prodigal son, we think we're in a pig pen. And we're actually further along in our journey back to the Father than we think. So um, that general confession allows us to see how God's mercy is already working in our life. And then finally, the last piece is what I said before, asking a person to, for, for forgiveness for how you felt about them. You know, and that's a very hard step to take. But guess what? The steps our Lord took on to, to Calvary are also hard steps to take. But what's the reward? There is no resurrection without crucifixion. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And most of life, let's be real, is Good Friday. Well, thank you so much, Deacon Harold, for being here today and um, just being in Hayes this week. We appreciate you. We appreciate everything you've done, talking to our kids at TMP. And um, you talked to junior and senior high, correct? Yes. Yep. Okay. And then the parish mission at St. Joe's. So if people did not get a chance to see the... Uh, mission at St. Joe's, you can um, watch it online because I believe uh, Father Brian's brother taped all of it. So um, you can go to YouTube and, and just search it out and it'll be there. So thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. I feel honored. Well, thank you for having me very much. I appreciate it. 
Thanks, Deacon, and thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning into One Body Stewarding God's Creation. If you can help keep great shows like this one on the air, please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate. Your donations will be very much appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Gray Band, and 88.1 Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.